From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. We're all very conscious of like, who grew the broccoli that we buy at the farmer's market or what's in the chicken breast that we're getting at, you know, the grocery store. And I really think, you know, we need to think about wine in the same way because it is, it's not romantic, but it's an agricultural product. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to the Thanksgiving episode of Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And what's Thanksgiving without delicious food and excellent wine? And that's what today's show is all about. Now, you just heard from Dana Frank, who is the co-author of the new book, Wine Food, along with Andrea Sloniker. It may seem easy to pair flavors in foods. We know how chocolate becomes even more wonderful with some sea salt. And it's undisputed in my mind that French fries and mayonnaise are a perfect match. But for many home cooks like myself, with a strong sense of what works in the kitchen, pairing can be much more daunting when it comes to wine. Enter Dana and Andrea, who created their new cookbook, Wine Food, New Adventures in Drinking and Cooking, to alleviate the stress of pairing and lend us all some support. Now, Dana is the wine side. She's a trained sommelier who co-owns Portland, Oregon's Bow and Arrow and just opened her own natural wine spot, Bar Norman. She was named a top sommelier by both Food and Wine and Bon Appetit magazines. Meanwhile, Andrea leads on all things food as an award-winning cookbook author with six other titles to her name, including The Picnic, and she's contributed to titles like Joshua McFadden's Six Seasons and Andy Ricker's Pock Pock. Now, in their new book, the friends and co-authors use their experiences in wine and food to break down the basics of home drinking and how to pair great food with equally exciting and affordable natural wines. Plus, in this week's In the Kitchen, we're headed to Jackson Family Wines in Sonoma County, California, where we're cooking a simple fall side dish with the chefs there, who are also out with a new cookbook. And then we're stopping by Bay Grape, one of my favorite wine shops in Oakland, California, where we're talking with owner Stevie Stacionis about her wine recommendations to pair with your Thanksgiving feast. All of that this week on the Salt and Spine Thanksgiving show. Let's head first to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where we sat down with wine food authors Dana Frank and Andrea Sloniker to talk cookbooks. Hi, Dana and Andrea. How are you? Hi, we're great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, So we're here to talk about your cookbook, Wine Food, uh, New Adventures in Drinking and Cooking. And I just want to start by saying I was reading through your book, looking at some of the photos, and you two seem to have like the best parties, the best life. (laughs) And how do we like get invited to your amazing wine fueled parties that look incredible? Come visit us. You have to come to Portland. Okay, great, great. I love Portland. Exactly. We do love to throw a dinner party. It's true. (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely inspiration for writing the book. Was it fueled by one of these elements more so than the other? Like, did you want to set out to write a book about wine and food sort of came secondary? Or was it Mm -hmm. sort of equal? It was really a convergence of the three things. Wine, we're both kind of in the wine world. Dana owns a wine bar called Bar Norman in Portland. Um, My partner is also a winemaker. He has Division Winemaking Company in Portland. So we're very much in the wine world. We also are super food lovers, cooks. Um, Dana's first job in the restaurant world actually was as a pastry chef. And I've been a professional cook and cookbook author for many years. 
And then the third element that we saw that was missing from most books about wine and food pairing was the moment that you're enjoying the two in and okay. how important that is to selecting what you're going to cook and what you're going to drink the night. Okay. Or the morning. We have a whole chapter on brunch. <laughs> right. So, yeah. <laughs> so you also use wine food as a verb mm-hmm. and as a noun. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach the concept of wine food? I mean, you say, this is how we wine food. Mm-hmm. What does that sort of mean to you? And how did you put that into this book? Um, well, I think, you know, as Andrea mentioned, the idea was like, how do you make those three elements go together? And so when we're thinking about the kinds of wines that we enjoy drinking that go with food. We're thinking about wines that are lower in alcohol, higher in acid, um, very kind of alive and fresh and really taste like the place that they come from. And so I guess that's how we wine food is we take those kinds of wines and then we think about what are the flavors um, if, you know, in food and a dish and a recipe that we want to put with that wine. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump in on the wine then a little mm-hmm. bit then first. So if we must, yes, if we must, were mm-hmm. there other things as you were looking at wines here and specifically at producers, you mm-hmm. recommend various wine producers to look for, yeah. for certain wines. Were there things or factors that you used to sort of draw you to these producers? Um, well, all of the um, producers, in the book, um, are make natural wine. So they live on that spectrum of not adding any sort of chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, anything like that in the vineyard. And then, uh, on the same hand in the, um, winery, there's no additions other than a little bit of sulfur. And so that definitely was kind of, that's been a big part of my career in wine. And, um, so that was definitely a focus of the growers that we were representing, um, but we also wanted to have sort of a wide range of wines from all over the place. We wanted sure. to represent both like classically known wines like Burgundy and Barolo, but then also unusual things like wines from the Canary Islands and, you know, um, wines from Georgia. So more off the beaten path wines, we sort of wanted to make it challenging so that you know, you could look at that book and say, Oh, I really want to make this recipe. This is an interesting wine that I don't know about. I'm going to go to my wine shop and try and find this wine. Or you pull out the bottle of wine that you have at home and say, I have this bottle of Gewürztraminer. Right. What am I going to eat with it? It's just been kind of sitting here. So, um, so it was sort of trying to find wines that represented different styles from all over the place too. The focus on natural wine seems to be growing, right? Mm-hmm. There seems to be more and more attention being paid to wine producers who are making natural wines. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you've experienced as well? Um, yeah, I would seen? say, yeah, I would say for sure. I'm glad you didn't call it a trend because that's my <laughs> biggest pet peeve when we're talking about natural wine. Cause actually the first wines that were ever made, sure. you know, thousands of years ago in the Republic of Georgia and in Greece were certainly natural. So, right. um, but it is something that people are paying a lot more attention to. And, um, where we live in Portland, there's, you know, it's sort of been like an explosion this year of people talking about natural wine. And I know down here, in the Bay Area, the East Bay especially, has really like seen a huge push and promotion of natural wine, which is fantastic. Yeah. Are there favorite recipes in the book mm-hmm. or favorite recipes and pairings rather? So many. Yours? Yeah. Um, again, you know, it depends on the time Yes, exactly. Of year. Right. You know, like a few months ago where we I was all about the tomato chat and like all I wanted yeah. to for is the tomato chat, which is like our version of a tomato salad with um, crunchy toppings and, you know, Indian spices and herbs. Um, but now as we're moving into fall, we're kind of um, into, we just actually cooked our roasted carrots with a pomegranate molasses that mm-hmm. served over lentils with labna, the, um, you know, thickened strained yogurt. 
and um, a really spicy, I should say spice-driven, not like heat spicy, um, green sauce called Zug. So we're um, we're kind of in that root vegetable, getting into like fall cooking and also considering wines that are, you know, like red, getting back into red wines with a little more girth to them. Right. Whites with a little more weight and more yeah. texture to them. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was surprised to see white Zinfandel, speaking of white, because um, <laughs> it has such a reputation and yeah. that there's a connotation around white Zin, right? Yeah. Right. Pairing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I think, um, you know, what's interesting is that there are a lot of wines in the book and I just think a lot of wines in the wine world that have gotten a bad rap yeah. at some point during their lifetime. I mean, we can name so many Riesling. Riesling forever will be like the redheaded stepchild of the wine world. It's like really like my number one favorite grape. And I think if you ask a lot of wine professionals and wine, just people who enjoy really, really love and drink a lot of wine, they call it Riesling as one of their favorite wines. Yet uh, so much of the general public would just tell you they just don't like Riesling, you know? Right. But um, other wine, Lambrusco went mm-hmm. through its moment of like, oh, it's just super sweet and kind of gross. But actually yeah. like the best Lambruscos are super dry and tannic. Um, they, are, and, they are fruity. But, right. Yeah. But very dry, yeah, you know, and don't have the food. sweetness. Mm-hmm. And I think... Rosé has definitely gone through that. And we touched on that a bit in the book is that it just went through this dark period where it was like, oh, it's just so sweet and kind of sappy. And White Zinfandel had a lot to do with that. So right. And now everyone is drinking rosé. Right. Rosé all like the, the time. Oh, yes. Yep. yep. It has been for years. <laughs> right. Um, I think wine can be an intimidating thing for a yes. lot of people. So um, you have home cooks maybe who are picking up your book. Mm-hmm. There's great recipes in here. They're thinking about cooking or maybe they're making something else. But that wine element yeah. can feel so overpowering mm-hmm. or like there's so much knowledge that mm-hmm. it's hard to know. And you have one piece of advice that I really love. You say befriend a shopkeeper. Yeah. Are there other tips for home cooks who maybe feel like the aspect of pairing wine with food uh, is really daunting? Yeah. I mean, I think the most important thing, if, you know, all else fails, <laughs> is just drink what you like and eat what you like. Sure. Um, I mean, sure, that's not a very, like, scientific way to pair food and wine. But if that takes the intimidation out of the exercise, then I always encourage people just to go for it. You yeah, know? yeah. Don't overthink it. Don't get worked up about it. Right. <laughs> just but, enjoy it. I mean, it's meant for enjoying. Yeah, <laughs> but definitely... We, our number one piece of advice is to, as you said, befriend a shopkeeper. You need a Sherpa. You need somebody to like take you up the mountain because it's not easy for the average person to walk into a wine shop or look at a wall of wine in a grocery store and figure out what's going. It's not easy for someone who like works in the wine business even. So, right. Um, but you know, we try in the book to keep it very like light and fun and like have some of that educational element in there. But we really also encourage people just to be adventurous. Like if you find a recipe that you like, but you don't know the wine, just take the book with you to your wine shop and just say, I want to try this wine because I want to cook this recipe. So Andrea, you've published several cookbooks. Um, you've worked on, I think, six or seven cookbooks now, um, including this one. How was this one different? Was it more challenging than other books? Oh, yeah. Doing this book was very much like putting a puzzle together Mm. because we wanted to feature certain wines, of course. We wanted to feature certain dishes, things that we'd cooked or um, experienced while traveling um, and, you know, that are like our perfect things to enjoy with wine. But also then we had to format them based on those moments that, you know, the chapters are divided based on. And so, yeah, it it was definitely more than just typical, you know, chapter, you know, chapters based on courses of a meal or, um, seasons. So 
It was a challenge, but it was actually really fun, you know, because it's like we, we had like a year to actually write the book. So we were cooking within the seasons and then kind of plugging in the dishes into the chapters that they fit into. And okay. also, you know, it just was very natural how it all happened because we would get in the kitchen and cook together, you know, talk about what wines we think would work just based on previous experience, drinking lots of wine and eating lots of food. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then, you know, like our guys and our families would come over, um, you know, come home from work or whatever. And we'd all get together and sit around the table and taste and talk about it. And so it was, it was a very awesome process. Were there recipes in your testing process that you were surprised to find paired with something that you didn't expect them to pair or sort of like shifted Lots. the pairing? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like we had a, um, one of our first recipes we did was like an Italian style chop salad, you know, with uh-huh. like salami and cheese and chickpeas, chickpeas and spicy peppers and things like that. And we thought that it was like going to be a shoe in for like a Pinot Grigio with like good acidity and, you know, just kind of a simple white wine, but we found that to like not work at all. (laughs) And we, it took several different tries with different wines to find the right wine for that. We wanted to include that salad though, because like when you're eating Italian food, you want to drink wine and that's like such a good salad. We just Mm -hmm. love that, you know, kind of, kitchen sink salad throw everything in from the fridge and lots of oregano (laughs) um so we really wanted to include that and we ended up finding the perfect pairing with arnaise which yep exactly so uh, another white wine from northern italy but um you know more unusual than pinot grigio and again that was just a nod to like oh let's just do something classic like italian salad lots of oregano vinaigrette pinot grigio and it didn't work right yeah and then we had moments that were like we were crying because the pairing was so good. Really? You know? Oh, yeah. Well, not literally. <laughs> no, but I mean on the inside. <laughs> but on the inside. Our sure. first, the very yeah. first recipe we ever developed for the book um, was is the um, caramelized onion soup with a brulee blue, um, and it's paired with sherry. And um, that was the very first thing we did when we were just we were still writing the proposal for the book, and the pairing absolutely blew our minds, and we were like, okay. I think we're onto something here. Like, mm-hmm. if this is good, we're on the right track. So, yeah, it's nice to like have a winner like this. Like, you think it's going to work and you use everything you know about that you learned about wine and learned about food and put your palate to the test and then it works and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Not always, but it's great when yes, it does. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Dana Frank and Andrea Sloniker, authors of Wine Food. We're headed now to California's Sonoma County for this week's In the Kitchen segment, where we joined the culinary team at Jackson Family Wines to cook a dish from their new cookbook, Season, a year of wine country food, farming, family, and friends. Today, chefs Justin Wangler and Tracy Shipos Tsunami show us how to make a roasted vegetable dish that's a perfect alternative or addition to sweet potatoes at your Thanksgiving table. Here's Tracy. This is a roast kabocha squash with pepitas and rosemary brown butter. And um, we like to garnish that with some fresh pomegranate seeds and mint leaves. So this dish is very seasonal, obviously, the squash. and um, But it's really quite simple. And a couple of the reasons that I like kabocha squash, one, right off the bat, it's just beautiful. It has that contrast of color from the outside kind of skin part um, that's green to that beautiful, you know, orange of the outside. But um, quite honestly, it's also really easy because you don't have to peel it. <laughs> so that's very appealing. Um, no pun intended, but it's very appealing to be able to have squash that you don't have to work to peel it. You can just roast and then eat the whole thing. Can I pour you a glass of wine first? You look like you need a drink. Yes. Yes, I would. I would definitely. Mm-hmm. 
What am I drinking, Justin? The Vintners Reserve Chardonnay. America's number one selling wine for over 25 years. Cheers. Yeah, hey, Brian. This is going to pair really nicely with this squash. Now, Tracy started by roasting the kabocha squash halves for about half an hour at 425 degrees with just a little olive oil and salt. Now, our kabocha squash is done roasting, and Tracy has pulled them from the oven, let them cool just slightly, and sliced each half into quarters, leaving the squash's skin on. We're left with these softened squash chunks that are going to saute in butter. So you're just going to brown the sides, the flat sides now of the squash um, with some butter. So as the squash is browning, your butter is also browning, which means it's going to start to you know, smell fragrant, a little bit of nutty. We don't want this butter to burn, but we want to develop a little bit more flavor in that butter, that nutty flavor, and then the rosemary in there. And that'll start to become really fragrant. What I do is I turn my pan on and you want either, like I said, a cast iron pan or a heavy bottom skillet. Um, and then you go in with butter in the pan and go right in with your squash. Because what you want here is you don't want the pan to be too hot so when you put the butter in it gets brown too fast. You want to give it enough time to develop flavor while it's also browning the squash. So you don't want everything to happen too fast here. This is definitely a little bit of a dish that requires a little bit of patience. And speaking of patience, while we wait for the butter to brown and soak into that delicious kabocha squash, we're thinking about how to balance wines at your Thanksgiving. Maybe a few of your guests bring a variety of bottles, and Justin recommends pairing them to various courses. Definitely when I go see my grandma, she like one of her dishes is sweet potatoes with marshmallows on it and some toasted pecans. And I always like to bring a bottle of Riesling. Right. And she's not a huge wine drinker, but she'll she'll have a glass of Riesling with me. And Riesling me. is delicious with turkey. Yeah, and it it's is. it's pretty pretty forgiving wine. It kind of lends itself to the food. We we make one Kendall Jackson that's a little bit off dry, so it's kind of fun, especially if you you know maybe have some of those southern influenced dishes where it's a little bit on the sweeter side. And then I always like to bring Pinot Noir because it's lighter style red with the turkey, and it's just also popular wine and. You know, with the pomegranates, it's often a nice choice, too. And then Chardonnay is also a good one, especially when you get into the richer things, like the stuffings. And there's always a lot of butter and butter and Chardonnay. Mashed potatoes. A, yeah, an overrider. Mashed potatoes, of course. Um, and then if you have a dessert wine, too, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody always has it. It's one holiday where everybody pretty much eats dessert. And uh, late harvest Chardonnay has yeah. that sweetness that's really, really nice with the pumpkin pie. Now the squash has absorbed all of that butter and is turning golden brown on each side. Tracy is going to add rosemary leaves to the butter and let the butter brown. So, I mean, I know you can't smell into the microphone, but it does. I mean, it really, like, that's how you know that this is working, right? You're standing over it, and it starts to just smell really good. Like, the butter is starting to smell, you know, a little bit nutty. Um, You can see the edges. It's getting, the butter's getting a little bit foamy looking. Um, You know, the edges of... The squash are starting to get a little bit of color, you can see. So, you know, you can play around with the temperature, but you don't want it to be too high. Um, Because, again, you don't want that butter to burn. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and add the rosemary. And you can hear that. You can hear that rosemary. I mean, you can hear that almost kind of crackling. And you can see it too, you know, the rosemary will start to very apparently 
you know, have a very different um, look and get a little bit darker. It won't be quite be as bright green when it's starting to get that fried. And you're just using whole rosemary leaves. Yeah, I just kind of pulled the pulled the rosemary sprigs right off the stem. I'm not chopping it. I, because, again, I want that. If it was too small, it would burn really fast in the pan. And I also want that texture. So I want it to get that nice kind of, you know, I want it to get, like, nice and crispy. Once the rosemary is crispy and the butter has browned, Tracy takes the whole dish from pan to platter, drizzling the extra brown butter over the squash. You don't want any to lose any of that butter, so anything that drips off, you're going to want to go right into the, the platter so then your guests can lap that up if they want. So now we've got this beautiful brown squash on the plate with the rosemary and the brown butter, and then it's just as simple as garnishing with the rest of your ingredients. So we've got our toasted pepitas. Our pomegranate seeds doesn't get much more fall than that. And then I've got these mint leaves that I just like to tear. And that becomes really fragrant too. And then I like to garnish with a little bit of esplet pepper and then some molden sea salt. And what kind of pepper did you use? Esplet pepper, which is like a, um, a dried, it's a, I believe it's Spanish, it's like a dried um, pepper that has just the tiniest bit of heat and a little bit of smokiness to it. So again, it's just adding one more layer of flavor in this dish in a really simple way. I mean, it's just this really nice, and, and how many ingredients? I mean, it's one, two, three, four, five, you know, less than 10 ingredients in this dish, which is also really great um, to be able to bring a dish, if you're bringing a dish to a Thanksgiving or a holiday meal, and um, it looked like it was a lot of work when really it's not. <laughs> that's always that's always nice too. So you can find the recipe for roasted kabocha squash with pepitas and rosemary brown butter from Season, the new cookbook from the Jackson Family Wine Team, on our website, saltandspine.com. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And personally, of course, I love the wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss upcoming classes like Knife Skills Level 1 and Italy by Ingredient Holiday Ravioli. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. As Dana and Andrea mentioned, it's important to find your wine Sherpa. So I popped by Bay Grape, my neighborhood local wine shop, to chat with owner Stevie Stacionis about her wine recommendations for Thanksgiving. So it's Thanksgiving week. People are getting ready for their Thanksgiving meals and probably thinking about what wine to pair. I'm hoping you can give us some guidance as people think about pairing wine with their Thanksgiving feasts. For sure. Um, The first thing I would say is don't get too stressed out. There's plenty of other things to stress you out about all these people coming together at one time. Um, I think of wine pairings broadly overall as um, like this idea that anything is welcome. So the same way no one would would turn down a dish that got brought to Thanksgiving dinner and say, that has no place here. Like everything is welcome at Thanksgiving. I think of wine in the same way. Everything is welcome. And turns out that probably something on the table pairs with whatever you ended up bringing because there's so much stuff. And so it's going to be great. Um, But that 
said, I think there are, um, for myself personally, a few wines that tend to just be really versatile and really easy drinking okay. and light in body and low in alcohol, which means you can drink more, Yes, which that's means great. you can eat more and drink more and eat more and drink more. Which is the theme of many Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, broadly speaking, I think um, we could start with a white wine. And um, generally, I think that Thanksgiving has a lot of fat and a lot of salt, yes. which are my favorite things. Um, but in terms of wine, things that pair really well with that or that um, complement or contrast with that really nicely um, are acidity and don't get scared now, but a little bit of sugar. So um, a wine that has a lot of acidity is going to basically quench your thirst and cleanse your palate and cut through all that fattiness. And then a wine with just a little bit of sugar is going to balance out the saltiness really nicely. So with that in mind, A grape that a lot of people are familiar with is Riesling, and Riesling has awesome acidity, and that's why it's often made in just a little bit of what we would call an off-dry style, or a little bit sweet. It can be made very sweet or completely dry, but a lot of, I think, the best ones have just a little bit of sweetness balancing out really high acidity, and because some of that sugar is was was not fermented into alcohol you have a lower alcohol wine right we're talking maybe like nine or ten or eleven percent which is much lower than some big bold like california red so you can drink more yes and it pairs really well with everything and how about a red recommendation right and so then the red um i like to think of uh my red as being liquid cranberry sauce Mm, so there's a purpose for cranberry sauce at the table i think it lends this bright kind of pucker and almost like cleanses the palate as well um so i like to drink my cranberry sauce rather than eat it and the wine that reminds me most of cranberry sauce is beaujolais yeah. Beaujolais is a region in southern Burgundy in France. They make wines from a grape called Gamay, which is light in body. It has lots of tart acidity to it. And these kind of, yeah, underripe, slightly sour cranberry notes, like maybe like a little bit of strawberry. And um, they're just like, again, kind of low in alcohol and light and easy. Yeah. Awesome. And both like very easy to find. Both of those wines are very easy to find. And both of those wines also can come at like a really stellar price point. Yeah. Like you can get very, very good quality small producers. The Wine Food Book talks a lot about natural wines and producers that are working in that manner often have a little bit of a higher price point, but wines of both Riesling and Beaujolais can come in easily sub 20 bucks. And they're also often wines that at a good wine shop you can find in large format. Okay. And nothing says giant family and friend celebration like bringing a magnum <laughs> yes. of anything. Totally. So let's talk about a couple specific dishes then. Um, so you're thinking about maybe the mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. which are delicious, but don't have a lot of flavor. That's why what I put gravy pair? all over them. Yes, gravy. <laughs> and then what but, do you taste it with? <laughs> yeah. So for me, my mashed potato wine is white Burgundy. Um, okay. Burgundy, I just referenced that region. The south of Burgundy makes Gamay. Um, further north in Burgundy, the white wines come from the Chardonnay grape. But because the climate is so much colder um, and they have a really distinct soil type with lots of limestone, you get a completely different flavor profile than what I think a lot of people think of as Chardonnay. So um, instead of any 
like buttery, oaky, rich tropical fruit. You have citrus and tart green apple and kind of a chalky stoniness, sometimes a slight little smokiness. Also awesome acidity, which as I said, is crucial for cutting through rich fattiness. Yeah. Now the star of many Thanksgiving tables, not all, is the turkey. What do you pair with turkey? Uh, I would say white burgundy again, okay. but <laughs> um, one of my favorite things, well, white burgundy is my favorite wine, so just to be totally fair, but one of my favorite parts about the turkey is actually picking the skin off of the turkey, Yeah. Um, which much to my mother's dismay, like usually the turkey arrives naked, as she says, <laughs> to the table because I've eaten all the skin, which is like shatteringly crisp and fatty. Um, and for me, the, the best compliment to that in particular or my turkey when I put gravy all over it, is champagne. Okay. And, or any kind of sparkling. Yeah. To be fair, champagne must come from the champagne region, sure. and it can be pricey. Um, but any kind of sparkling wine, the bubbles and the great acidity also complement that really well. Okay, good to know. I was going to ask if bubbles have a place at the Thanksgiving table. Bubbles have a place everywhere. Okay, good. And then how about dessert? So mm. dessert is a staple at every Thanksgiving, I would hope. Uh, pumpkin pie, pecan pie, all sorts of delicious sweet things. Yes. How do you close out the meal wine-wise? Um, so I think it depends on what exactly you have but for me because again I want something that's really versatile um, I'm looking to dessert wine first of all a lot of people again are scared of sweet but with dessert which is very sweet you need a wine that has at least that much sweetness to match it otherwise the wine is going to taste really flat and kind of dull so we got to be looking at dessert wine and for me one of my favorites is um, Madeira so Madeira is a fortified dessert wine well it can be dry too but um, fortified means that they um, are fermenting the wine and then they usually will stop the fermentation when there's still some sugar left in it. And they stop the fermentation by adding a hard like alcohol, like a hard okay. spirit sure. to it. And so there's so much alcohol then in the wine that the yeast that are completing the fermentation, they basically die. And you're left with all this residual sugar and then this fortified fuller wine. But Madeira in particular is really unique among all of the fortified wines because it's made on the island of Madeira. And its process involves um, both heat and oxidation. So the heating of the wine essentially means that it's like kind of cooked. So you get a lot of these like dry kind of raisinated characters. And also the oxidation makes for also kind of like dried and these like nutty tones to it. Um, And that means also that you can open a bottle of Madeira and essentially it'll like never go bad because the things that would normally spoil it, heat and oxidation, have already happened. Okay. But so that's a lot of geekery. Getting back (laughs) to the like overall profile, you get these like salty notes that I think must come from the fact that it's made on an island. Um, And then these like beautiful nutty hues. And if you think about pairing like a little bit of sea salt and nuts with any of the pies that you mentioned, apple pumpkin pecan that's like total home run also i think what has turned out to be my theme for all of these madeira has great acidity and acidity also makes it feel kind of a little bit brighter and fresher and more lifted so that it isn't super cloying even though it's still quite noticeably sweet okay awesome but bottom line is you can't go wrong bottom line you cannot go wrong look for a riesling look for a beaujolais but you can't go wrong with a pairing at thanksgiving for sure okay awesome thanks so much stevie And now, back to our conversation with Dana Frank and Andrea Sloniger, authors of Wine Food. So tell me, is there a wine that we might not know about that we should be paying attention to? Oh, boy. 
I'd say wines from the Republic of Georgia. Yeah, there's a whole mm-hmm. chapter yeah, or have, section. We have yeah. a whole menu of um, recipes and wines from that area of the world. And um, we both kind of fall in love with them in mm-hmm. kind of in recent years because they're becoming more and more available in the U.S. Um, Dana at her... Um, you know, in her work life as a sommelier has really been championing, championing them in Portland and, um, has turned me on to them as well. And I would say the, um, the Balkan wines, we did a pairing with, um, Romanian cabbage rolls with red wines from the Balkans. Yeah. So from Croatia and Serbia and, um, man, those are special wines. And yeah. again, it's, I think people would really like them. We just have had very little exposure to them here, but they're pretty lovely wines. Right. Yeah. A lot of um, orange wines come from those regions too, mm-hmm. which is another kind of growing um, segment of the wine industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about orange wine for people who might not yes. be familiar with what mm-hmm. it is and how it's produced? Absolutely. So, so you can refer to it as an orange wine or skin contact wine, but basically it's, white wine that's made like a red wine. So the grapes come into the winery and with traditional white wine making, you would separate um, the juice from the skins and just press it. Juice goes one way, skins go the other and it's white. And in red wine making, you leave the skins and the stems and the juice together to bleed some of the color off of the skins. That's where the color comes from. So orange wine or skin contact wine is basically white wine that comes in and it's left with the skins and the stems like a, right, a red wine would be. Right. And so it um, takes on a little bit of color from the skins. Certain, you know, every grape variety has a different amount of color in the skins. But it also takes on um, like tannin and texture and all of these interesting aromatics that live in the grape skin that generally get pushed away when you press the juice off the skins in a traditional white wine. So... Right. And it's how wine was made, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago before anybody like had a fancy press and decided that you could like squish grapes with your feet and separate everything. It was sort of like you just took it all and put it in a big container and let it ferment and then you drank what came out. Yeah. And it always had that kind of orangey color to it. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. um, you talk about cooking with wine mm-hmm. as being something that has happened for, for years, right? You talk about specifically Coco Van and wine cooked with chicken. And, um, you know, it used to be, you know, a sort of a rustic peasant dish with some extra wine from the bottom of the jug and like an old rooster from the yard <laughs> that you just kind of throw yeah, together yeah. and make really nice tender meat. Um, was cooking with wine, was that something that you thought about when you were putting this together? Yeah. Um, there are quite a few recipes actually that, that throw in a little bit of wine, you know, d- to deglaze the pan and make a sauce, that right. kind of stuff. But it's not like a lot of, you know, the cocoa van is actually a good example of like one that the wine is really the feature, featured component of the dish. That, that French onion soup that she mentioned, actually it's our version of French onion soup topped with blue cheese instead um we use sherry in the soup and then the sherry goes with the wine and it's just kind of like that's what creates that magic is the you know the depth of the sherry flavor in the soup having having it cooked down a little bit with the onions and then you have the blue cheese and so yeah it layers the flavors it's it's pretty amazing yeah it ties it all together mm-hmm. and you you treat sort of those two camps of cooking with wine a little bit differently right if you're using a small amount of wine it's it you can take a different sort of quality of wine, right? Than if you're making a cocoa right. van or something where there's a much larger portion of wine going mm-hmm. into the dish. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's that old saying like cook with the wine that you're going to drink, right. but we actually don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially not with cocoa van. Yeah. You know? Cause you know, like you don't right, necessarily want to open a $30 <laughs> bottle of wine if you're, you know, serving something really nice. If you've been cooking a cocoa van all day. 
um, and just throw it in the pot, let it cook down. It really does, you know, you're not going to get the nuances in the wine to the extent that, you know, it'd be worth doing that. I don't but think. also at the same token, like throwing a $4 bottle of wine yeah. in there would be tragic yeah. because you are cooking it down. You are concentrating all the flavors yes. and then that is like saucing all your chicken and saucing everything on the yeah. plate. And all of a sudden it's right. You've cooked a disaster. Yeah. So what we tend to do is just, you know, we always have little, you know, bits of wine left over in the bottle at the end of the night. If you know, well, sometimes we do, <laughs> not always, <laughs> but you know, just ha- let those hang out in your fridge. I even sometimes like combine wines if it, you know, makes yep. sense. Right. Um, and just have my red cooking wine in the fridge. Yeah. It's so great for so those small. recipes where it's like, you need a quarter cup or you need, mm, you yes. know, a half and, cup. It's like, cool. I'm just going to pull this out of the fridge because y- I already have it open. Yeah. Right. And I'm talking about recipes like that, where it's like, it's an element of the recipe. It's not like the focus, like a cocoa van. So sure. Yeah. You mentioned a $4 bottle of wine, so yes. let's go there. Um, Sorry. I don't know any of what? Drink. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what is the price point? I mean, another sort of uh, roadblock, I think, for a lot of people is they yes. think wine is expensive right. and that it's hard to get a good bottle mm-hmm. for anything less than, you know, $40, $50. Right. Um, you say the go- a good price point for the recommendations in your book is around $25 mm-hmm. per bottle? Yep. And I think if you're just going to a store and you're just grabbing a bottle, if you can spend $15 you're in a like totally different category of wine than if you're spending $10. Yeah. And it's a $5 difference. Right. Um, and you know, I think so much of it is just about knowing what is in the wine that we drink. And because we don't have any labeling laws for wine, it is impossible to know. And it's, you know, we would love to think that it's just grapes that are in that bottle, but, um, especially on the industrial scale of wine, there's a lot of chemicals that are used in wine for various reasons to change the texture of wine, change the color of the wine, to take bacteria out of the wine, to change the taste to, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on. And, but we're all very conscious of like, who grew the broccoli that we buy at the farmer's market or what's in the chicken breast that we're getting at, you know, the grocery store. And I really think, you know, we need to think about wine in the same way because it is, you know, it's not romantic, but it's an agricultural product, you know, at the right. end of the day. So I think $15 is a really great at the retail level. Um, and I don't think price dictates the quality of a wine. So you can certainly buy a $15 bottle of wine that is absolutely fantastic, that's organic, that is super tasty, and a $40 bottle of wine that is full of all kinds of stuff that you probably wouldn't want to drink and doesn't taste very good. So unfortunately, price doesn't dictate, but it is really hard to get quality wine for under $15 a bottle. It's not impossible, but it's pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing to consider when you're talking about, you know, wanting a value wine, look outside of like the major wine grapes that you've heard of. Yes. You know, like Pinot Noir is always going to be more expensive. It's much, has much more cachet. Right. You know, red Burgundy, white Burgundy, those kind of wines, Barolos. Look at some of these other regions that we're talking about in the book, like the Balkans or, um, you know, like smaller regions of Spain Mm -hmm. where you can get really high quality wine out of value because people aren't you know, going nuts over those wines. Right. uh, But they should be. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being flexible. That's what Mm -hmm. we say in the book. Just Mm -hmm. be flexible. So you also have these fun little pullouts that make fun pairings with things like takeout food. So you suggest like pairing takeout pizza with Chianti or pad thai with some kava, or like when you actually don't want to cook at all, you suggest pairing Lay's potato chips with white burgundy or a frozen pizza with some Montepulciano. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just, I, I don't really have a question here. Yeah, I just yeah. like really loved that that's aspect of the book. That's just real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Popcorn for dinner. Right. right. That's in there too. Well, yeah. sorry, with the- any wine that you have on hand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It was our way of like sneaking in more 
more pairings without giving the recipes because some of those things just don't need a recipe. There's a whole pairing cheat sheet on pastas from around Italy. And most people don't need another recipe for, right. you know, cacio e pepe or spaghetti and meatballs. But maybe you're having that for dinner and you don't know what kind of wine to drink. Right. You know? And yeah. so it was a way yeah. for us to like sneak some more pairings in there. Sure. Yeah, just a little more, you know, and like also that's kind of the, those sections are intended to be used at a restaurant perhaps like, you know, or when you're ordering takeout, like right. what, what are you going to drink with your takeout? Right. Please yeah. take our book to a restaurant and then open it up as you're ordering. <laughs> and say, I'll have this. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I, just do what you can here for me. Right. I mean, I, I loved the takeout page because how many times have you just had like a really terrible shitty day uh-huh. and you order like some takeout pad thai or some chicken tiki masala yep. and maybe you just want to like improve your day a little bit yes. more by taking that takeout food and yep. having a really nice pairing that exactly. just like makes it perfect. Yep. Yeah, and that makes is it like sing. the perfect night really. You yeah, know? right. We have, um, we actually have tasted a bunch of those wines with takeout and it's super fun and they, they taste really, really good. Um, yeah, and it's uh, the Lay's potato chips and white burgundy is one of my... That's an Andrea Sloniker classic high-low, highbrow-lowbrow pairing. Like the yeah. cheapest bag of chips you can find, but the nicest bottle of white wine. I'm going to try that. It's great. Negronis and potato chips are my go-to. Yes. I feel like this maybe can yes. be added to that list. Mm-hmm. Potato chips are just really good with things with lots of acid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And alcohol. Right. You know, it kind of cuts it. <laughs> right. <laughs> cuts the richness, cuts the salt. Exactly. Right. So you're both coming from different industries in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. You're bringing some culinary industry. You're bringing some wine industry. Mm-hmm. And also both industries that are traditionally underrepresented when it comes to women. Mm-hmm. So you have women, uh, winemakers highlighted in here. Um, was that something you thought about as you were putting this book together, how to bring more um, women who are producing wine into your recommendations? You know, we know that even in California, I think it's like 10% of winemakers today are yeah. women. You know, it wasn't, um, I, I, you know, can't say that it was like a conscious thing that we wanted to make sure that we were including women. Um, but it just happens that there's so many wonderful wines made by women that yeah. it wasn't hard to include them. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty it, easy to include them. It wasn't like a stretch to include women. No, not like at it all. It just came naturally because there are so many. They're actually, you know, even though it is a small percentage, like I feel like the types of wines that we're talking about, I don't know, there's mm-hmm. maybe there's more women in that segment yeah. of the wine world. It's hard to say. I don't know. Hard I don't to know. say, but yeah. One thing yeah. that's very cool about our book is, and this again was not intentional, but pretty much every single person who worked on our book was a woman. So yeah. two of us, our um, photographer and her assistant, our stylist, our publisher, editor, our prop stylist, our event person who helped us. Right. Yeah. Everybody Dana's was mom a woman. Was our dishwasher my mom was our dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> hey, mom. But yeah, um, that was, was all women. That was yeah. actually more, um, we were more conscious of that. Like sure. we really, we were really excited that we were working with, um, Lorena Jones, who is our editor and publisher. She had just, we were one of the first books that she acquired under her new imprint within 10 Speed Press. And so we were really inspired by her and she's just such an amazing woman. Oh my gosh, woman she's a powerhouse in the yeah. industry. And, um, you know, Eva Kalenko did the photography and she, we've just totally looked up to her for so long. Love her. Her work, her work is just so beautiful and right. fit the kind of fresh, modern, um, fun look that we wanted to have for the book to have, you know, to kind of break out of that stuffy, um, snobby <laughs> wine, wine thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah, that was like. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, the cookbook industry to throw in a third industry has also traditionally been dominated by white men. So mm-hmm. that's great to have a team yeah. um, made up of women. And I think that that's great to hear that it's not hard for you to find 
female winemakers because right. when we do talk about percentages, I think women are underrepresented, yes. but a lot of the like aspects around representation come in who's getting attention, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So who's getting written about in the wine guides mm-hmm. and in the big wine profiles. Absolutely. So women who are making great wine are there. Yes. Absolutely. Seek them out. Yep. Mm-hmm. They awesome. are. It's Absolutely. not, um, it's not cause we're not yelling very loud. We're yelling. <laughs> <laughs> we <sure>. made wine. <laughs> oh Yeah. We made a little wine too, to How was release it? with the book. Yeah? Yeah. What kind? Um, so it's a blend of Pinot and Gamay. Okay. Um, it's called food wine <laughs> to oh, go along with I the book. <laughs> we made 25 cases and okay. we just thought it'd be fun to have a, a little project, a, a project to go with our project. <laughs> right. <laughs> and since project. both of our guys are winemakers, we did it collaboratively, collaboratively with them um, since neither of us are winemakers. And um, yeah, it was very fun. And it's a super, it's basically like our favorite kind of everyday red wine goes with all kinds of food. It's very gulpable, super fresh. We put a little chill on it. Yeah. It's 70% Pinot and 30% Gamay and it's all Willamette Valley fruit from Oregon near where we live. Awesome. That was fun. Yeah. Very fun. Well, congratulations on the wine and the book. (laughs) Thank you so much. So we always close with a little game just to wrap us up. Um, So I thought today we'd play a fun game where I name a couple days or moments or events that are coming up and maybe you could throw me a dish and throw me a wine and see if okay. we can make a fun pairing okay cool uh-huh. great. okay it's okay. great all right how about it's a tuesday night your child has a total meltdown just like nothing's going right tantrums everywhere <laughs> but you still got to get dinner out and you know mm-hmm. you're gonna break out a bottle of wine what do you do okay i got the perfect one for that because i always make pasta in those moments because it's comforting fast and amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> yes <laughs> and we have the new tuna noodle oh right the oh, new tuna noodle it. yep yeah. they do um and we serve that we recommend that with aligote which is a white um wine that comes from burgundy but it's not white burgundy it's its own grape aligote and it tends to be much less expensive than white burgundy so it's a great tuesday night right. wine it has like very pretty minerality and acidity, so it cuts through sort of like the richness of the tuna noodle, but very pretty fruit, so it also complements the tuna. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. So pre-New Year's Day, <laughs> you're headed to an ugly sweater party, <gasps> right? Um, and maybe it's a potluck. I don't know, an ugly sweater potluck. So what yeah. do you bring to eat and to drink? Dips and sticks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. really a recipe in the book. Tell us. So it's basically like crudite. Um, so raw vegetables, whatever's in season. Um, and you make three different dips. One's a pistachio yogurt, mm. which is awesome. Awesome. Like, it's so like, good. You just eat it off the spoon. It's yeah, so delicious. You just like wow. keep it in your fridge at all times. Um, tonado, which is mm-hmm. the, you know, tuna, tuna is the reoccurring theme here. <laughs> <laughs> um, classic, you know, tuna spread, dip, sauce, whatever you want to call it. Um, and a salami butter, like a chorizo, chorizo, chorizo butter. Wow. Yeah. So it's like almost like a chorizo pate. If and you, you serve these with vegetables. With um, and you for serve dipping? it with, but, uh, sorry. You serve it vegetables. with vegetables for dipping. Crunchy awesome. vegetables. And okay. then you serve it with Albarino is the wine. So white wine from Spain that is like fruity, but also very like minerally and stony. Um, yeah, that's a great way to show up at an ugly sweater party, not yeah. with an ugly wine. Um, I'll give you an easy one because I know you have some great brunch recipes in here. Yeah. But New Year's Day brunch, friends are over. What do you serve? Um, a f- torta di frittata, which okay. is a layered, it's like a layered frittata with very thin omelet, like, um, layers of egg, um, with sauteed, well, actually we call for nettles, but we often substitute kale 
and wild mushrooms and fontina cheese layered within like four layers. So it looks like a frittata cake. It's beautiful. And then we serve it with Franciacorta, suppose sparkling wine from Lombardy in Northern Italy. So it's like fancy without going like super highbrow champagne. Right. So it's great. That's like a perfect New Year's Day sparkling wine. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some cooking and some eating and some drinking to do. So yes. thank you, Dana. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so really much for having it. us. Thank yeah, you. It was great. Super fun. I love that game, by the way. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from wine food, the slow-braised lamb ragu with rigatoni and whipped ricotta, and pomegranate roasted carrots. Plus, you'll find the recipe for today's In the Kitchen segment, the roasted kabocha squash with pepitas and rosemary browned butter from the Jackson Family Wine Team. Of course, you can also enter our regular weekly cookbook giveaways this week to win your own copy of Wine Food. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And we always love ratings and reviews. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. A special thanks this week to Stevie Stacionis and her team at Bay Grape, and to Justin Wangler, Tracy Shipo Tsunami, Tucker Taylor, and the team at Jackson Family Wines. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 